Warning! This podcast contains hot takes, cliched opinions, and strong language. Woe to you, O Earth and Sea, for the devil sends a beast with wrath, for he knows that time is short. Let he who hath understanding reckon the number of the beast, for it is a human number. His number is 666. Welcome to Records and Bands, a classic albums edition, where we're going to be talking about the 1982 album from Iron Maiden, The Number of the Beast, if you couldn't guess already. Joining me is the biggest Iron Maiden fan I know. He's a guy who got me into Maiden in the first place, and I'm pretty sure this was the first record that he taped for me. Welcome to Records and Bands, Leon Bateman. Nice to have you back. Thanks, mate. Oh, yeah, how are you doing? I'm not too bad. So I wanted basically just have a bit of a chat about number of the beast because next year it's 40 years old so we might have shot our load a little bit early we could have <laughs> saved this episode for next year that might have been you know if we had fought it through yeah sam's not with us so i just thought it'd be a good opportunity for me and you to get together and talk about a record that he probably wouldn't want to listen to anyway because <laughs> he's a ghoul so i suppose that's fair enough but um he did roll Enjoy seven son of the seventh son. So uh, perhaps, perhaps it's something that he's coming round to. Is a bit of maiden. Maybe I think he. I think he's probably trying to be kind and not offend you because he he kind of <laughs> knows it. That you know we might want you. Obviously, we want you back on the on the show. I think you're going to be one of the, those recurring guests. To be honest, one of those people that doesn't go away. Yeah. No, 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 no. Like like third, <laughs> third wheel or whatever they call it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I said something on um instagram about how me and you were talking about iron maiden and he was sat in the corner like a dirty cook <laughs> watching <laughs> so um iron maiden obviously massive metal band they've been around since well 1980 was it the first album released uh 70 well 78 they were sort of recording early um uh, iron maiden uh, uh, title tracks uh, that released in 79 then i think it was 80 stroke 81 was killers because they, from um, looking a little bit on the internet and doing a little bit of research for this, um, there seem to be many singers and many guitarists, but Steve Harris and Dave Murray seem to be the ones that were, like, well, obviously Steve Harris, it was his band, and Dave Murray would come in, and then Dave Murray went for a bit, and then he came yep. back while everyone else revolved around them. But I think by by the time the Killers album came out, it was pretty settled, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's Killers was uh, Clive Burr on drums, Dave Murray on uh, first guitar, Adrian Smith at that point on second guitar. Uh, Dennis Stratton had left because um, the music he was listening to was too soft, so it didn't really fit with the Maiden profile. It was Paul Diano on vocal, Steve Harris on bass, but the more importantly, the biggest uh, key to um, the Killers album, which incidentally is my favourite um, for reasons we're not going to go into today. The key was Martin Birch, uh, record producer. So um, he had worked with like Deep Purple and uh, did he work with Jeff Tull as well and all those yeah. sort of bands earlier on? Literally, if you were a rock band, you've worked with Martin Birch. It was, and Martin actually wanted to record their first album also, um, and was really really pissed off that he didn't get the phone call. So when they rang him up to do Killers, he was like, "Well, I was waiting for the phone call for the first one, but it never happened." 
So uh, he was already kind of on board with the Maiden Sound and what they were trying to do. So that was that little um, six piece, as it were, was um, absolutely um, the, the working blocks for, I think it was their next eight albums, right up until like Summer in Time, Seventh Sun, right. that sort of era. And then um, he retired from it. Um, but that whole. Five piece in a band, Martin Birch, just produced some fantastic stuff right from the off. So from what I understand of Martin Birch with that first album, because I, I did go back and I watched the um, BBC classic albums yesterday. Yeah. It, you know, it is part of my research for, for this important podcast. So that, that was released in like 2001. So obviously times moved on from like 1978, 79, and memories may be hazy. Yeah. But uh, Martin Birch basically said like he desperately wanted to produce that first Maiden album. And Steve Harris said, we de- desperately wanted Martin Birch to produce that first album. We just didn't mm. think we were good enough or big enough. So exactly, like, why, yeah. why would the man who just who produced Deep Purple, like one of our favourite bands, why would he come and work with us? Yeah. And then, like and I you think... say, it sparked that massive relationship <clears throat> which has carried through into his retirement, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he solely worked with Maiden at that point. Cause, um, but there's some fantastic stories about the recording of A Number of the Beasts where um, he was brought in, obviously, for Killers. Um, a lot of the material was pretty much already ready for Killers, but as soon as A um, Number of the Beasts arrived, Martin had kind of got himself sat in a chair. And there's some brilliant stories about Martin's kind of like repetitive, anally perfecting technique of recording that just completely and utterly there's some, there's some, yeah there's some stuff for the um there's some stuff for the um the song number of the beast that i saw bruce dickinson talking about um yeah. on this documentary yesterday that he just got into, we'll talk about it later on we could go track by track yeah. but yeah. he's he certainly like he got him to do like the first four lines he's he spent four hours or something doing the first four lines and then yeah he used the one which had great scream yeah, like, and, yeah, but Bruce Dickinson's like, "What the fuck do you want?" Yeah, like, and and why and why is that the good one? You know, but Martin, obviously, and and this is the thing. It's like um, George Martin with the Beatles. Um, they could have just gone through, recorded an album, and that would have been it. But for Martin Birch, he sat there thinking, "They're trying to do this. This is what they're trying to do." I think they need to try and do it like this so let's in a way that makes this record something let's usher these people off towards creating something that is something and um i think in the early days of maiden that's that was if they'd have recorded another eponymous album with just a nondescript producer i don't think killers would have been the album that it was no but because you've got martin birch sat behind the deck going oh this needs to be this, this needs to be that, which is why Killers is my favourite. Yeah, it's almost like it's not just sat there with the knobs, is it? It's almost like that guiding hand on the shoulder of the songwriter, because I know that yeah. like Steve Harris, <clears throat> certainly for them first couple of albums, would write pretty much everything except guitar solos. Yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, and yeah. he'd come up and go, right, this is this bit, this is this bit, and this is this bit. Yeah. Um. So whether that's, you know, just having that relationship between primary songwriter and producer... I think that there has to be a a mutual understanding of what the music is attempting to achieve, mm-hmm. but also there has to be the willingness for the 
outsider, which would have been Martin Burtz, just sit there and go, no, 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 that, that's not how I do things. This is how yeah. I do things. You listen to how it's going to sound, how you want to do it, which is what happened with the Bruce Dickinson scream on the um, track. So, so Martin Birch clearly had an influence on the band. Absolutely. And clearly had an influence on that album because, um, so 1981, that second album, Killers, was out and it facilitated, basically they went on a their first like big world tour mm. off the back of that. So ju- during what was called the Killers World Tour, where they hit the US, Japan and Europe, uh, several dates in Germany had to be cancelled because Paul Diano was displaying self-destructive behaviour and mm-hmm. probably addiction issues. So, yeah, when they came back from, or while they were in Europe, Diano's behaviour was described as increasingly self-destructive, and he's quoted um, about his cocaine use on the History of Iron Maiden DVD, yeah. as and, quote, going for it non-stop, 24 hours a day, every day. And nice. with schedules planned months in advance, he, and again, quote, could not see his way out of it. Mm. Now, I went looking at some early videos on YouTube, and I know the quality is not great, but you can definitely see evidence of substance use from even from like performances that were recorded in 1980 to those recorded in 1981. Mm. Um, he's a bit further in the face, and he's got that sort of I know it's sweaty playing live, you know, it yeah. gets hot, but he's got that sort of cokey sheen. Yeah. So at the end of that tour, Diano was dismissed. And this yep. is where it gets a little bit twisted up. But ultimately, they brought in Bruce Dickinson. Ex-Samson vocalist. Yeah. So there's a few things here that I just want to go over with you. You being the historian and the, <laughs> we'll and, see. And, and the, mega, and the mega fan. Okay. So Paul Diano still to this day says he quit the band. But the band say they sacked him. Yeah, it was a definite sacking. That's how I understand it. Definite sacking. There's also seems to be a lot of talk about his drug issues being the reason behind the parting of the ways. Okay. But it also feels that, or it's true that Bruce Dickinson had already been lined up. Um, on the Classic Albums documentary from 2001, Steve Harris said that they'd used up most of their material from the time on the first two albums yeah. um as a songwriter he was oh, and as a songwriter and an arranger he was getting more ambitious with where he wanted to go and basically thought that paul couldn't take them where he wanted to go musically so yeah. that's quite a difference between you know you're fucking up because you're on drugs and we don't think you're a good enough musician to take us where we want to go yeah i also think um there's there's elements of both of that, because if he is constantly smashed off his tits, mm. the complex arrangements that literally follow on um, Number of the Beast, if you smashed off your tits, I mean, even those, even if I'm sober, I still find it quite difficult sometimes to find out where they're going on Number of the Beast. So, oh, I, Diano, first two albums with Diano, the second uh, Killers album is his best vocal performance by far, in my opinion. The first one was, as we've spoken about before, a kind of bridging album between punk and metal. Mm-hmm. And they did a fantastic job of marketing it as that. But the second one was clearly metal with more complex arrangements. And I don't know, I seem to vaguely remember there being some friction 
between the band recording that second one, um, mostly between Diano and the rest of the group. So they've kind of gone on tour. He's descended into substance abuse, erratic behaviour, um, you know, legendary backstage bust-ups between other bands who were on the bill. And it, it was going to happen. It, he was going to be um, ousted. But uh, Samson had already done a bit of support work for Maiden as well. So they'd seen um, Bruce, Bruce, as he was called mm. at the time, as a potential uh, successor. So just before we get too deep into the hiring of Bruce Dickinson, do you mm. think if Diano hadn't had the drug issues, they may, they would have maybe stuck with him for another album? Or Yeah, I think, I think so. I think um, there was enough ability there to to carry him through. I think the substance abuse made... Uh, I always think that it's the case. I think if you smoke too much, drink too much, alcohol too much, the effect it has on you vocally, physically, mm. mentally, it, it, it all takes... Don't get me wrong, I know there are people out there, um, Dave Mustaine, you know, legendarily says that he doesn't remember most of the 80s doesn't even remember recording the majority of the albums he recorded in the 80s, which is, is fine if you can do it and you can go out, stay out on stage and perform every night and, and, and get by that way, like Lemmy obviously did for many, yeah. for, de- for decades. But I don't, I don't necessarily think you'll always be at your best, which I think is, a, is part of the thing with Motorhead. Yeah. Um, when, you, when you see Motorhead, you kind of get the impression that any minute now, Shit's gonna happen. It's all gonna come off the rails. Oh, you know? see, I don't think that. I saw I saw Motorhead like five or six times, and I just thought they were tight as fuck every time. Honest, like, really? Yeah, yeah, really good. The only time I had a bit of a wobble with them was when uh, he got the fucking acoustic guitar out to play like uh-huh. Core House Blues or something. I was like, didn't come for the acoustic then. Come on, mate. <laughs> I guess yeah, that makes that makes sense. I guess. Um, um, but... I suppose what I'm getting at is I like, I don't know it. Like I'm not. I, I'm not trying to. I'm not. I'm really not comparing Paul Diano and Bruce Dickinson as singers. I think Number of the Beast would be a very different album with Paul Diano singing. But I mm. don't necessarily. I I don't know. I don't really know what I'm trying to say to be honest. Yeah. Well, when we come up to the track by track, yeah, there are songs that I am certain that were written for Paul Diano. Yes, so am I. I'm pretty yeah. sure about that as well. So, basically, Bruce Dickinson playing for Sampson. He would have seen Maiden loads because they supported each other in the early days and they came up in that new wave of British heavy meds all together. Obviously, Maiden were a much bigger band by the time. But again, Mm. on that Classic Albums documentary, Bruce Dickinson reckons he watched Iron Maiden and thought, if I was in that band, we could all do wonderful things together. So what I wonder is, how much was going on behind the scenes to get him into the band? I know there was like a meeting at Redden Festival that sealed the deal. Yeah. Bruce doesn't get writing credits on most of Number of the Beast because of the contractual stuff with Samson. So while they were in the studio recording Number of the Beast, he was still technically, I think, as I understand it, contracted somehow to Samson. So he can't, can't, I think there's only like one song that's got a Bruce Dickinson writing credit on. Yeah, there is. Yeah. Um, I forget which one it is now. But but, um... But that wouldn't be surprising given. Steve Harris's tendency to go right. Here's a song. Dave, give me a guitar yeah. solo. Adrian, do a guitar solo. I just thought yeah. that was quite interesting. You know that even in those early days, there was like those silly yeah. bullshit about money. Basically, it seems. 
Yeah, I think um, with with Bruce being on the circuit, um, there, there's plenty of times where they've played on the same bill. And obviously, as you said earlier, there's there's a point where it's sealed the deal. And it's quite sort of um, an, another sort of legendary maiden story where in a field, there's Rod Smallwood and Bruce Dickinson stood in the middle of the field trying to be surreptitious, but... Without realising it, Steve Harris has said, he said, I'm stood there watching these two people stood in the middle of a field trying to cover up what they're doing. And they stood underneath a massive fucking spotlight, literally sealing the deal. It's yeah, like- that was on that classic album's documentary. He's saying in a field at Reading and yeah. they're just fucking thousands of people. Then they're going, look, I made this new singer. <laughs> and just think, yeah, if you're going to do it, just cover it up a bit. But obviously, that's why I think you're right. There has been things going on underneath all of that where, you know, they've had meetings. There's now um, on YouTube, if you have a quick look on YouTube, there's a very old recording of Bruce Dickinson singing Aldiano yeah. material. Um, no video, there was just some audio. Some of that stuff came out on some and... of the reissues they did with the bonus CD. So there's some um, versions of him doing yeah. Running Free and stuff. And obviously, I know they do it. He does stuff like that live now, but like record like from yeah. live gigs at the time. Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I pulled off of that um, uh, that little recording audio, I think it was Phantom of the Opera he was singing, and. Uh, a couple of people comment in the video below. You see, can you imagine being sat in the audition room? Um, Bruce Dickinson walks in and sings that, and you're literally sat there going, yeah. I'll just pack my fucking yeah. stuff up and go home then. Because <laughs> the 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 what Bruce manages to do in those early auditions, um, if that is what they are, audition tapes, um, or perhaps they're just like pre-Bruce taking over re- rehearsals, Bruce manages to nail what yeah, Paul Diano does, and make it his own but again. But then, sort of, just take it up like ten notches. Um, it, it's an incredible uh, piece of audio to listen to because you really realise that Bruce, Bruce's style, what he sings now, and the way he sings "Running Free" and um, the, yeah. uh, the stuff that Paul sung, he sings it now in Bruce's way. He doesn't. Yes. He doesn't have to try and imitate. Yeah, he, now. He yeah no, does he doesn't he do Rothschild the same way as Paul Diano done Rothschild. It's, it's it's now just a different song. Like, yeah, exactly. And there's there's times when I actually think, or oh, I wish he would sing it a bit more like Paul, because that's kind of how I remember the song. But having seen them do Rothschild at Donington, there's very little gets a blood pulse in like Bruce Dickinson doing what he does. So, so once Bruce is in the band, they fuck off to Italy for a few dates. And then there's a one-off show at the Rainbow in London, and it's basically to introduce to the singer to or introduce the singer to the fans and to kind of show where they might be going because they debuted 22 Acacia Avenue yeah. at the Rainbow gig and Children of the Damned. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so after they go into go off to Italy, do a gig at the Rainbow, they head into the studio in about January 1982 to record the Number of the Beast. Yeah. Greatest year ever. <laughs> <laughs> so how old were we then? We well, January 82. So I'm September. So I would have still been like, I would have been about two and a half and you would have been nearly three. Yeah. So we're well qualified to talk about the time. Exactly. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember it well. <laughs> but really, if we have a quick think about what else was going on at the time, 1982, and I haven't, I haven't actually researched this, but off the top of my head, you would it have been stuff like soft cell. Mm. 
Yeah. Tainted Love. Um, there would have been like Olivia Newton John bollocks in the charts, I expect. That might be a bit late, I don't know. Yeah. I said it's an era that I never like I liked all the punk stuff going back, but there's not a lot that really jumped out. Yeah. Queen would have had a few tracks out then and probably, yeah. Um it's it's definitely a year of uh, um I say a year, it was probably the early sort of 81, 82, 83, um, a real transition. It's the ba- back end of the of punk in, mm. in like the new wave, new romantic stuff hasn't really kicked on. Yeah, it, it's very much a sort of something's waiting to happen type era, in my opinion. I think it's really, it's a tail end of punk, isn't it? Yeah. And maybe the very early, early Manchester scene. I suppose the Smiths would start coming around about 83, would they? 84? Yeah, that's... I might yeah. be early on that. I'm just quickly googling that now. Actually, uh, 1982 number one song, so we can see exactly what's. Yeah, go so, on then. So here we go. Come on, Eileen. Uh, Dexies, then, yeah. Yeah, Fame by Irene Cara. Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Okay, now. And the Lion Sleeps Tonight by Type Fit. So I think that kind of just describes exactly yeah, it does, it what 1982 was all about. It, it had nothing going for it, really. In my, <laughs> there's just just nothing at all. And then. At the back end of February, they released the first single from the album. Run to the Hills. Run to the Hills. Now, they released Run to the Hills because the album's not ready. They've been delayed. The album's not ready for the tour. They've got all these dates booked, but the album's not finished. So Run to the Hills comes out and it's like, shit, we need to, we need to put something out. We need a single. That one will do. Yeah. I don't think there was a lot of thought behind it being like when they write, I don't think they thought, right, this is the lead single from the album. It's like that's finished. It's it's pretty catchy. Let's bang it out. Yeah. And then and then they went off on tour. Uh Run to the Hills, number seven in the charts, their biggest hit. Yeah. The album was then released on the 22nd of March. Uh, with the trademark Derek Riggs artwork. The artwork was originally printed with a blue background. Um, because of a, a press error, <laughs> which I know all about because I'm a printer. Yeah. And um, yeah, they printed uh, the first pressing of the album with a blue background on the sky, as you can see there. And um, for the second pressing, it was changed to black, which it should have been originally. Well, I, what I read, it was it reverted to black on that 1995 reissue. Yeah. But also it is black on the um, artwork on iTunes and stuff like that. Now. Yeah. Yeah. So, but also, it was originally intended for the single "Purgatory" off of the Killers album, and Rod Smallwood, I think, basically said, "That's too good for a single. We oh. might, we'll probably, we, we might well use that on for the next album." Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. And they all liked the fact that you you had the de- Eddie controlling the devil, who's controlling Eddie. Yeah, yeah. But. That's uh, that's that's one of the things I've always quite liked about the cover. There's um, a really cool picture I saw as well um, during research of this. You've got, it's like a parody of the cover. So you've got Eddie with a marionette. Yeah. And then you've got Smithers. <laughs> and then he's, and then the little Eddie is Mr. Burns. Ah, right. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. The album and the band, their first number one. Yeah. Going on to sell more than 14 million copies. I say more than because that, the, that was the only figure I could find. And that was 10 years ago. It's still changing also because people are still yeah. buying it. So um, it's regularly included in top 50 or top 100 charts of great albums in all the different magazines. Mm-hmm. And most notably, it was fourth in Rolling Stone's greatest metal albums of all time. 
and I didn't look to see what was number one. I wouldn't bother. It, it, it should no. it should be this, in fairness, indeed. So, 1982, we've already ascertained that we were both too young to be buying records. And on the previous podcast you joined us for, you said, obviously, it was Can I Play With Madness was the first one you heard. Yeah, and didn't Maiden. like it. <laughs> yeah, Bobby Brown. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that is called a callback, so people can go back and listen to the previous episode. To understand ah, why we're talking about Bobby Brown. I see. I'm getting into this uh, <laughs> pod machination. <laughs> so um, I know exactly the first time I heard Number of the Beast because you done me a taped copy of it and said, "Ear, listen to that. Yeah. And that was the first Iron Maiden album I listened to from start to finish. I think I already knew. I would have already heard um, Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter because that was about 1990, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I chat to you. Um, would have been said, oh, what sort of music do you like? Oh, I like this, that, and the other. Do you like Iron Maiden? Oh, I've heard a bit of it. And then, like, two days later, you'd done me a tape of Number of the Beasts, and there you go. Yeah. And I went back to the bungalow in Doclo, put it on in the tape deck, and, yeah. Mm. Yeah, didn't look back. Uh, it was then, like, two and a half, three years of that was made and dominating everything. Like, Can you, um, can you remember, like, the first time you heard Number of the Beast then? Or was it just all mashed up in with everything else? Remember listening so much, but I remember listening to um, Number of the Beast and kind of Killers being such a good album, not necessarily high-paced. It was a real mix of different sounds going on on Killers, lots of sort of softer numbers and faster numbers and everything else, which gave you that feeling that something really quite special was on the way. Um, and I remember listening to Number of the Beast and thinking... A few things. How can they play so fast, so accurately? Hmm. And I mean, the songs on there are like 160 beats a minute. It's insanely fast. And also thinking, if you're a fan of drumming and yeah. you haven't listened to this album, there's something wrong. You need to listen to this album. This is like a masterclass in drum technique. It's just phenomenal. As a drumming, if you could isolate, and I'm sure there are somewhere some isolations of how this album sounds without any other music apart from the drums, you would be dumbfounded at the ability of Clive Burr. It's unbelievable. And I still listen to it, not not solely for Bruce's vocals, because Bruce's vocals on it are absolutely... There's so much going on on this record, like, there's so much going it, on. Um, it blows your we'll mind. We'll get into that. So if we go through Number of the Beast track by track and we'll get each other's, we'll just have a bit of a chat about each other's feelings on, on it. Is there any tracks on there that jump out to you as like standouts or really weak ones that, before we go through them all? It's like asking, it's asking which of your kids is your favourite. It's Isaac today. <laughs> it's easy, obviously, isn't it? <laughs> um Listen, it's well documented that there are two poopers on this album, right? And if you talk to anybody, they'll say two tracks. Invaders, Gangland. Right. Right? That's what people say. Yeah. I don't agree with those haters. Oh, right, okay. Okay, I don't. Never have, never will. Let's start with Invaders. Okay, so okay. straight into Invaders. Go. Maiden don't write three-minute, 23-second bangers anymore. They don't do it. 
you're right. lucky if you get anything less than seven minutes these days. Okay. Invaders, just being a fan of the darkness, right? There aren't enough songs about Vikings, rapings, and pillagings, in my opinion. <laughs> So if you ask previous guests on the show, Rich Lovell from Terminal Rage, there's too many songs about Vikings raping and pillaging. <laughs> I think that's that's the divide between punk and metal. Um, listening to people like Dio and stuff as well, where they're writing about, you know, um, unicorns being carried off by dinosaurs um, and dragons. You, you've got to have, I think, a little bit of pomp in your music. And I think if you become too serious about what you're writing, that's when... I think you kind of, you've kind of blown too much smoke up your own ass. Get a bit Morrissey. Exactly, and I think Invaders is a fantastic start to the album. It's kind of going. Do you remember Paul Diano and what yeah. he did? This is the kind of thing we used to do back then, and that's one album I think that was written for Paul Diano. That's one song, so, rather. I think. It's really good. It's a great opener. The one bit that really, really grinds me is where he goes, Invaders! (laughs) Raping! Or pillaging! And I'm just like, yeah, and it feels a bit like, um, I don't know, like computer game music almost. Like the It just doesn't fit. It just doesn't... I don't know. And it's like, Invaders! Yeah. Ravaging! Like it's it is it's very um but the rest of it's fucking brilliant. The, honestly, the 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 verse, um the guitars on the verse are insane. Oh, it's just um it's just that kind of rolled raking on on the guitar at a pace that's um you shouldn't be able to hold those notes and the tone you get off that yeah. at that speed. I'll be honest, like it was I don't think I've listened to this album in full for easy 20 years. Right. Easy. And I wasn't looking forward to Invaders and it was so much better than I remembered it. Yeah. But it was just that one bit that rubbed up against me. And that's the a, Invaders. That's the problem with Invaders is it's a complete and utter vocal content misstep to yeah. what everything else is on the album. Everything else is very, very polished lyrically. Yes. A lot of deep meaning, apart from obviously 22 in case you have new. Track two, Children of the Damned. Right, I'll give you my opinion on Children of the Damned. I think it's Iron Maiden trying to do a ballad and let's just say it doesn't stay chill for very long, no. does it? Um, and I love it for yeah. it. And the beauty, I think... Children of the Damned contains the best guitar lead break that Maiden have ever done. That mm-hmm. last um, sort of third of the song where they're pedaling and he's lead breaking over the top, it is just, hairs on the back of your neck, stand up. It's yeah. amazing. And Bruce's vocals towards the end of it, just where they're singing the, um, now it's burning this, hands it's to he's turning yes. to laugh that piece of vocal for bruce is absolutely outstanding i think it's really good and i if if i remember rightly it was one of my favorites the first time i heard it like the like back in the days when we when i was first into maiden that was always one of my favorite ones on the track yeah. and i think because it was quite different to other stuff yeah. and the other thing that surprised me on listening to it again this last week is 
I always remembered it as being like a seven minute epic, but it's not. It's like four and a yeah. half minutes. But they fit so much into that four and a half minutes. It, it's epic. It is epic. And then there's other songs on this album which are longer than I remember, like The Prisoner, which we're going to come on yeah. to next. And is is like that's that's six and a half minutes. I remember that being a short and sweet yeah. banger. Yeah, but that that's that's Maiden's, in my opinion. Prisoner should have been Maiden's first single, right off, off the- this album. It should have been, in my opinion, yeah. because Runs of the Hills was a good song. I like it, but the Prisoner has got a strong theme. Uh, a stronger theme, I think, than um, persecution of Native Americans. But also, Prisoner is Iron Maiden's 1982 version of Can I Play With Madness. Mm-hmm. It's poppy. It's rocky. Oh, mate, it's poppy as Absolutely. fuck. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's it, like, we said this about Can I Play With Madness and even and do that if, when me and you were first in, you know, first knocking about, if I said, oh, that's a really good pop song, you would have beaten me around the head with your school bag. <laughs> but, like, there's stuff on it. It's just perfect mm. pop songs. Like, they know how to write a pop song. They do. And and I think The Prisoner is is that. I think The Prisoner, they've got the connected thing, and it should have been the first single, because I think it would have been their first number one single had they released The Prisoner because The Prisoner was still very much on the television at that point. Um, mm-hmm. They had the uh, identifiable voice at the beginning of The Prisoner. And I think at that point in time, they were frightened of releasing the six-minute song as a single. Yeah, I think if it, if there was a, if it was to be a single, I'd say it's like at the start of it, it, like, it, it goes around like... Um, there's there's like eight bars of the guitars and then there's another eight bars where it gets a bit yeah. faster that would they would cut that down to like two and yeah, four yeah i think you're right yeah rather than the eight and eight in you know just, there would have just been some differences i think every part would have been there there would just been some difference in the arrangement yeah, i think uh, to make it single length if you like but it's it's anthemic it's fuck isn't it in like when i bet even now, if they play it live, it's like a highlight of the show just because of how much they put into it and how much the crowd can get behind that yeah. chorus. So. Oh, it, it, it's still one of my favourites. It's one that I've tried to get my band, Frontrunner, to do on occasion. Because uh, it's, it's not uber complex. Um, it's vocally attainable, it, which is why I think The Prisoner is perhaps um, something that could have been sung by Diano. Whether it was thematically the same, I think, and possibly the actual song structure had been done previous, and Bruce has just brought in this. Um, it's just been brought in to to embody that TV series of The Prisoner. Um, I think potentially the music already existed when Diana was around because it's not mm-hmm. vocally ast- stratospheric. It's not a Bruce. It seems quite, just to go back to the recording of the album, like, it seems quite a quick turnaround to be like Paul Diano, they're on tour with Paul Diano all through the summer of 81. And then at the beginning of 82, they go into the studio, supposedly with no, mater- no material left, and then they come out with this. They've got to have been writing yeah. all through that yeah. year. That's not three months worth of material. Honestly, anyway. it's not. Not with the complexity of it in the everything that goes on within that album, that's not three months worth of material. So yeah. I, I think there are, as I say, invaders. I can hear, as he's singing that, I can hear Paul Diano singing that. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah. 
the prison's the same because it's vocally not overstretched. Right. 22 Acacia Avenue. 22 Acacia Avenue was the first one that wasn't solely written by um, Steve Harris, as I understand it. So Adrian Smith was playing this in his old band, or a version of this in his old band, Urchin. Yeah. And he reckons he wrote it when he was about 14, about a local knocking shop. So if he's about 23, 24 at the time of this, so when he's 14, so this is looking like early 70s, if he's... Mm. So if this song was kind of conceptualised in the, let's say, the mid-70s, let's be kind, and then worked on again in the early 80s, like the kind of attitudes to sex work they're portrayed in the songs, you can can tell where they come from. I don't know if, like, they said, I don't think it would be written today. No. I I think actually as well, there was quite a few... um... Uh, interviews that have gone on with Maiden over the years and they've all kind of said there's one thing you can't sell to somebody it's a song about prostitutes and they said you know when they wrote that song um what was the first one Charlotte Harlot Charlotte Charlotte Harlot, Lakes, yeah. yeah um now that that song eight and eight about prostitutes no doubt about it sex workers and they've kind of all these people have said songs about prostitutes don't work. Sex workers. Sex workers. <laughs> right. Am I, am I completely on PC there? It's not, it's, I, I, it's not a phrase I would use anymore. Oh, really? Okay. That's interesting. But then, but then you, you know, I'm a right on annoying twat. So there you go. Maiden, when they're writing this, they were sort of panned for writing a song about sex workers. They were told that it, you can't write a song about sex workers because people don't buy it. I don't really believe that because police, Roxanne, who doesn't remember Roxanne as a song? That's my opinion. Okay. So 22 Acacia Avenue, um, uh, not to be confused with uh, 22 Acacia Road, uh, which is um, Banana Man, completely different place. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the, again, this is a great track. Yeah, no, it's it's a re- it's what I was going to ask you. I was going to basically say it's a really good song, and I think it's lyrical content nowadays is a bit dodgy. But I think if you take it as a you know if you if you take it on on what it is, which is a song that was conceptualized in the mid seventies and recorded in nineteen eighty two, and then I think you can just you just have to forgive it. Yeah, that it that it hasn't that it doesn't hold up lyrically to the standards of today, shall we say? I think um, that's that's true. And I think it is... I think the lyrical content in here, yes, would not stand up, but only because it is blatantly about sex work. Mm-hmm. Blatantly, obviously. Um, uh, do you enjoy your lay or is it the pay? You know, it's, it's obvious. And in fairness, like, again, Bruce's vocal... Let's just get back to technical details. Okay? Bruce... <laughs> Brutus Oral on that song. That's wrong. It's fucking brilliant. It is. <laughs> I think to be fair, it's all the song is always on the mm. like lyrically as well. Like to be fair, the song is always on the side of the woman. I think it is as well. Yeah. I yeah. Think, so, I think you're right. Which is why I think if it was on the side of the John, if you like, then mm. you might think, oh, hang on. You know. 
We probably but, talked too much about that. Now. Yeah, but um, <laughs> going back to that, where you've just said that um, it's on the side of the woman, but there's a bit, um, a little bit later on, beat her, mistreat her, do anything that you please, bite her, excite her. Not necessarily on the side of the woman on that one. No, no, I suppose. <laughs> so I think it's what, what's really good about this um, uh, track, uh, six minutes, 34 seconds. It's covering um, the first part of it, which is basically saying, um, you know, if if you're a loner, you're not really happy in your life, you can meet this woman and have 15 minutes of pleasure. Minutes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm being... Uh, well, you're, you're, incorporating, you're incorporating foreplay there. You don't have foreplay with a sex worker. Um, you just want to get your money's worth type thing. Um, <laughs> I think you'll find I'm a kind and generous lover. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so yeah, don't you remember? <laughs> that was a long time ago, and I don't want to talk about it. Right. Moving on to the the big one, the 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 beast, if we like. Yeah, the weakest song on the album, in my opinion. What? Yeah, not a massive fan of it. I'm afraid. Right. I listened to. I had it on yesterday, and I thought it was absolutely joyful. I I thought it was amazing. I loved it. It was just brought a smile to my face the whole time listening to it. Now, whether that's some, the nostalgia value, because I knew I was going to get to talk about it with you today, and then thinking back to me and you knocking about, and you know, it wasn't mm. very far from, from 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 being on, like you know. Yeah, so. and in fairness, I think it's only time that's dulled my joy of it. Yeah, I mean, how many times have you seen them? They've probably played it every time. Yeah, and all the albums I've listened to, live albums, all the live videos I've watched, this features heavily at, at all times. It's it's a maiden live show staple. Uh, to say that it's the weak, uh, one of the weakest tracks on the album is... I think that's a massive hot take on your part, to be honest. And I think it's probably <clears throat> just... Tantam- or I think it just shows how much you listen to Iron Maiden. Yeah. And how much you know Iron Maiden stuff that is yeah. not... I mean, that... I'll come on to something else later on, but if you ask anyone who isn't a Maiden fan to name a Maiden song, they're going to say Number of the Beast. Yeah. Or Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter, maybe. Yeah, maybe Run to the Hills as well. Um, yeah. I think that's that, that would factor in. My, my problem with Number of the Beast is, right, if you put that song, uh, just, it ends too quickly. It's a Maiden epic. It's a Maiden epic, right? That only lasts four minutes, 49 seconds. Yeah, again, it was shorter than I expected, or shorter than I remembered. I wonder if there is somewhere in the can, there's three or four more verses kicking around. Yeah, it it, it just almost... um Because it was the second single off the album as well. Yeah. So I wonder if, it, like where we said about The Prisoner could have been a single, but maybe it's a bit too long. Yeah. Maybe... They knew the title track was going to be a single, so we best. Yeah, it feels like one of those like seven or eight verse epics, like you say. Yeah, it it really does. So, as I understand, lyrically, it was inspired by Steve Harris watching The Omen Three. Yeah, not The Omen, but The Omen Three, and also the Robert Burns poem Tamashanta. Yeah, I've heard that as well. You know, but that whole feeling of is this real? Is it not? Is it going on in my head? Is it all just some crazy dream? Yeah, that that is, is what I think he got from the Tamashanta, to be honest. Yeah, and I think um, obviously when you're trying to write something that's um, representative of something that you've watched, seen, heard, um, 
you kind of got to try and just put it down as it happens, um, as it comes into your head, which is what I think um, has happened in this one. They, they've not kind of gone too deep into details. And it's just, um, you, you get what they're trying to say, you get the story. But in my opinion, being a fan of Maiden, it just all ends far too quickly. He, he literally all goes from... Um, Name of my sex tape. Oh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, it, as I say, once it gets to that point where it says it, it can, this can't go on, I must inform the law. Um, but just put your tongue firmly in your cheek <laughs> and listen to listen to like Bruce's vocal, which you mentioned about earlier. Like like the production on the song is amazing. Incredible. Bruce's vocal is brilliant. Um, the two guitar solos. I think the first one is Dave's and the second one is Adrian's and like they just complement they're different enough and they complement each other so well it's just a really put together again it's a it's a fucking pop song yeah and it's really good yeah and i think it is just you know best part of how would we name like, yeah best part of like nearly 30 years or more listening to it yeah it's probably just and don't get me wrong it, if it comes on i've i've just got tons of music on my phone and put my headphones yeah. on and just put it on shuffle. If it comes on, I don't go, mm, I'll skip that. I'll see. I felt that's exactly how I felt when the next song came on, Run to the Hills. <laughs> I was like, oh, fucking hell. Yeah, I'll agree with you. Because again, because I hear it so often. Yeah. For me, it's another one that I feel lyrically is problematic. Yeah. I, again, I feel that the, the intent is clear and it's coming from a good place. Mm. It's just a bit on the nose. Yeah. Yeah, so as I understand it, Steve Harris wrote Run to the Hills about the plight of the Native Americans mm. at the hands of the US Cavalry on that slow march, or, or on, on that westward expansionism that happened in the 1800s. Yeah. Okay, so the first couple of verses are from the... And this is Steve Harris has said, the first couple of verses are from the point of view of a... Cree tribesman or a Cree warrior. Yeah. Okay. And then the second the second couple of verses are from the point of view of a US cavalry. Yeah. But the Cree weren't in America weren't in what in the US. Cree tribal lands are north of the Great Lakes. Like they border on like Lake Superior. I think some of them came down to around Montana, but that was like a very small area. So when they're talking about redskins in that geographically it's wrong for a start you wouldn't have a u.s cavalryman chasing Cree soldiers and yeah across the wild across the western states of america yeah also if you think you have to show both sides of it yeah if you have to show if you're writing a song and you feel you have to write both write the point of view of a genocide from the person carrying out the genocide fuck you yeah I, <laughs> do you know <laughs> i think it's for me this is the weakest track on the album, purely and simply because it's it's their attempt at making something radio friendly, and it worked. It, it did work. It absolutely did work. But at th- three minutes fifty to explain the plight of the Native Americans in three minutes fifty seconds, mm-hmm. it's another it's another problem with somebody who's been listening to Maiden for forty years, uh, thirty five years probably. Yeah. You. You expect more. And it's the same problem with Number of the Beast. There's just a story there, but it's just not fleshed out enough, in my opinion. And as you say, to represent both sides of the story, but I don't think they represent the um, 
the soldier blue in a very good light. Let's put it that way. It's, it comes over. It's, it's very matter of fact. Yeah. It's not, no point does it say, so here we go. Soldier Blue and the Baron Waits, hunting hunting and killing's a game, raping the women and wasting the men, the only good injured's are tame, selling them whiskey and taking their gold and saving the young and destroying the old. Now, when you pass that with Bruce's somewhat triumphant vocal style. Yeah, yeah. Like, you see what I mean? And, and, And the anthemic quality of the song, it feels a little bit, this is 40 years on from when it was written and attitudes have changed. Yeah. And, but I don't know. I think they're insulated a bit from being a load of that from the East End of London as well. Yeah. So I had a little chat with someone on um, Instagram this morning. They do another really cool music podcast called Verse Chorus First. Yeah. Um, and they, he did ask me to make sure we dissect the, the infamous lyrics to Run to the Hills just for a cheery view of what... Uh, a cheery view on us white Americans' genocide of the natives. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I think I think we've done that. I've, yeah, I've, and I've said, I've, all I've asked, I asked him, um, does 40 years and great riffs forgive what I'll call kindly immaturity? Hmm. I think, I think it's still a maiden staple in their live set, and it's entirely because it's a, just a good song. Regardless yeah. of lyrical content, it, you could get into so much talking about lyrical content and why it's right, why it's wrong. Um, but I think what do you think? What do you think they would write it? Do you think they would write that today? No, because they're better musicians. They're better writers. Mm. I suppose it'd be a case of. Their use of metaphor is a little bit more mature and yeah, yeah. And there's very little imagery there. Yeah, that's it. It's just this is what it is. I think for me, like I say, I think it's like the first couple of verses, which are from the side of the um native tribesmen, they're quite like the music behind it all is all quite like the bass doesn't really kick in properly until the, the cavalryman's verses, if you Yeah, like. that's true. So it feels a bit more subdued. It's like like white man came across the sea, brought his pain and misery. To, um, oh, and then uh, many came too much for Cree. Will we ever be set free? Mm. And then when you go onto the, the side from the cavalryman riding through Duskers and Barren Waste, that's when the galloping bass kicks yeah. in. That's when the song really feels to start. And for me, that's that kind of puts the emphasis. And like I said earlier about like the the almost triumphant vocal mm. that all comes on when they're singing from the point of view eee. of the cavalryman. And I just wonder if the arrangement was a bit different. Whether, mm. but, what, but again, what you got to realize, we'll just come back. That's a writing me- uh, mechanism. Um, he's writing yeah. from the the peaceful aspect of um, yeah. the the Cree, and it's jubilant for the for this um, for the American side of things because they're riding for glory. They're out capturing mm. for America. And this is this is the rightful, lordful thing to do. This is what God wants. Is it bollocks? You know what we've done? We've spent about 20 minutes, <laughs> right, as two white boys in England talking about whether five white boys from England should be writing songs about the, the plight of the Native American. So should we move on from Run to the Hills? Indeed. So after Run to the Hills, we move into Gangland. Yep which I feel is another song that was probably written with uh, Paul Diano in mind. I think you're right. 
Yeah. I've read or read or heard somewhere that it was either this or Total Eclipse. One was going to be a B-side and the other was going on the album. And Steve Harris has said they think they made the wrong choice and they should have put this as a B-side on, I think it was on Run to the Hills. Yeah. And Total Eclipse on the album. Yeah. And that's... And I'll be honest, I'd forgotten all about Gangland. I don't really have an opinion on it. I think it's all right. If it's not on there, I don't think it's missed. I've got to be honest, um, if they'd have put Total Eclipse on, it would have been um, sonically um, too much of a jar for the album. Right. I think this is the right choice because it's edgier. It's more sort of um, in keeping with... And they put it in the right place as well. Um, Although it's about sort of like battling day-to-day on the streets, um, struggling with like crime and living in like ghettos where just walking out on the street could get you knifed, that type of thing. I think in the position where it's played in terms of run to the hills, where the blue soldiers are kind of those people who are on the streets doing the killing. I think it's got a position. It's the right position. It's, it's descriptive enough. And, sonically the same as the rest of the album but also it's something they might know gangland might also be a bit more of what they they know what they grew up with i agree yeah yeah being east end boys in london they have a little bit more first-hand experience on that yeah and i think total eclipse if you listen to total eclipse does it sound like any other song on the album not at all not at all it would have been a a, 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 an audible misstep in the in the in the actual progression of the album I wonder though, because like Steve Harris was saying on that documentary I watched that, you know, they made the wrong choice and should have put Total Eclipse on. Maybe like we were saying, we've heard number or you've heard Number of the Beast too many times. Maybe because you've heard the album so many times and Gangland is there mm. and you've all and you've always seen Total Eclipse as a B side. Whether that in, impacts on your whether you think, oh, it's a B side, therefore it's not going to be up to the standard. No. I don't think that's the case. I think it's because no. um, when you listen to Total Eclipse, it doesn't sound like the rest of the album. Okay. I think it is a B-side. I th- or it's a song for peace of mind. It's not a Number of the Beast track. Every single track on here is hard, it's edgy, apart from Invaders. But if you have Total Eclipse and Invaders, it then becomes an album of too much change. I like the fact that it's sonically similar. There's a lot of really sort of quite driving heavy guitars on it. Um, Total Eclipse hasn't got that. It's it's too ethereal. It's right. It's got its place on maybe Killers. And when you listen to Peace of Mind and you've got Still Life and things like that on there, it fits with that. But it doesn't fit here. That's my opinion. And cool. for all the people who turn around and go, oh yeah, Gangland's a pile of crap. I would challenge them on that. Right from the get-go, it is the best drum intro to virtually any track I know, other than, like, um, Where Eagles Dare. Um, It's such a great drum drum intro. Um, And I've played it to the band a few times and just said, just listen to the drums. Just listen to the drums. Ides of March off the Killers album is another fantastic Mm -hmm. drum beat um, to, to start a track. But you listen to the way the drum beat um, drives the song. It's a fantastic drum beat. And you listen to Adrian's sort of bow, 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 guitar sound. 
it's it is like nothing I've, I've I'd, I'd ever heard at the time, and that's why this cool. song stands out for me as as a, a, a good track on the album. It deserves to be on there. Excellent. That's a completely different view to what I had. I completely forgot it was even on the album, to be honest. Yeah, so, I think, and again, good. a lot of people do, but I think it's it deserves to be on there because there's so much sonically going on within that song that makes it an interesting listen. Right, <laughs> to the big unit now. Hallowed be thy name. This is where the long song and their ability to write that long song is demonstrated in fantastic fashion. If Number of the Beast have been seven minutes, ten seconds long, like this song is, the descriptive quality within the lyrics of this song is, is what makes it. It describes emotion. It describes the, the, the feeling of his jail cell the cold cell there's a bell tolling in the distance the guy's fearing for his life he can hear that bell chiming his last thoughts are for his family his friends but also the fact that he's been sat in this cold cell waiting for that bell to chime and as soon as the bell chimes he knows it's time to go the descriptions the surmounting terror, the feeling of being in this tiny cell, suffocating on the last few minutes of his life. This guy, it's such an amazing song. Total description of the end of Death Row. The the gong bong from Clive Burt at the beginning on the drums. It's that chiming of the bell that makes it all kind of... Um, the, the rundown of the bass and the the harmonization of the guitar going dun 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 da da dun 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 and the bass just going dun 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 da da dun 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 it's it's call and response he's he's almost saying to himself can anybody hear what I'm thinking and in the distance there's somebody family friends wife daughter whatever it is is kind of going I'm here I can hear what you're feeling I'm I'm feeling it too we're here and that bass and guitar syncopation and harmonization makes you feel that he's he's not alone in a way, but he is. But it's the um, minor descent that makes him feel alone. And I think there's so much description in the music and the tone and the, the lyrical content that makes this song uh, the best song they've written to date. Right. So, yes... <laughs> Correct. <laughs> I think, like, if someone was to come up to me and say, um, "What do Iron Maiden sound like?" I'd this, I'd play them the song. And yeah. say, this is Iron Maiden, not Number of the Beast, not Run to the Hills, not The Trooper, or Two Minutes yeah. Midnight, or Power Slave. This into this is the essence yeah. of Iron Maiden. I think, arrangement wise, it's perfect there's nothing goes on too long or you know i want more of i think lyrically it avoids every misstep that could have been there like we've spoken about before yeah i'm 22 acacia avenue and run to the hills it manages to avoid all those missteps and not not drop into like melodrama or schmaltz if you yeah. like i think it's it's a real marker that they've laid down and the fact that it's the last song on the album as well it's like like this is us yeah. from this point on 
this is what it's you know they say like um jimmy page wrote stairway to heaven at 22 and how are you ever going to beat that mm. this is like i'm not saying it's their stairway or anything like that but i'm saying it's like this is the marker we're then going for ourselves we think this is our sound going forward from this point on this is what you should expect from us and this is the standard we try to hit so this is this is um Again, how very different lyrically it is to twenty-two um, Case Avenue. Well, well, a lot of the, a lot, well, not just no, well, not even just those two ones, that, uh, those two that we spoke about earlier. But it's like they do something lyrically. I don't think like I'm I'm not encyclopedic on the lyrics, but I'm pretty sure there's nowhere in the lyrics where do we find out why he is on death row, not at all. Why he is waiting to go to the gallows, and yet they still manage lyrically to convey or to get us on the side of the person who's going to the gathers. Mm, exactly. And I think there's very few people who are on death row who don't know why they're there. Yeah. But what, what I think what I'm mm. getting at is that like the, the maturity of the, the like the, the maturity of this song is it's oh, trying to get my words out like um but i think the one the one line that really puts it into perspective he says um take a look through the bars at the last sights of a world that has gone very wrong for me okay it's not just this moment that's wrong it, no, it's the, everything leading up to yeah so obviously there's major um mistakes made but he doesn't want to go into them now because all he's thinking about is the time he's got left yeah have you seen it's always um have you seen um Dead Man Walking with Sean Penn and Susan Sarandon, where Sean Penn's a guy on death row and she's the nun that's sent to like console him in his final hours. I probably have, like, but and he's he's like a really, really like he's there for doing horrible stuff to kids and or like teenage girls, it is. Yeah. Um, like rape and murder and that. But he's protesting his innocence, protesting his innocence, protesting his innocence, and he's a really fucking nasty bastard. Yeah. Like the whole of the film until the end, where he actually like where he knows there's no fucking getting out of this. Mm. I'm going to die, and then he does confess and he does ask for repentance or he does ask for forgiveness mm. right at the end, and then you actually feel sorry for him, which is a really big trick. Rather than if you're feeling sorry for someone who is um, claiming they didn't do what they're there for, mm. you're then feeling sorry for someone who you know did those terrible things. Mm. And it's like a big switcheroo on the thing. But on here, on this record, it's like, or on this song, it's that whole, you don't, you don't need to know why he's there. He could be a nasty bastard. Mm. But they've, like, lyrically, they've still got you to the point of empathy for the man. And I think that should be applauded on their part. I've got a few questions I want to ask you off the back of this, this yeah. little chat that we've had. Do we feel that as an album it holds up? If it was released today, I know we've spoken about um, some of the lyrical stuff earlier on, but mm-hmm. if it was released today, would it have the same impact? Oh man, that's a really difficult question. My initial response in my head is this would not exist today. You would get a record company walk up to this. People say, "Oh, have you heard this band? They're really good." Um, a record company walk up and go, "No chance." That's never going to make airtime. It's never going to be radio friendly. Number of the Beast was due to the fact that a lot of people jumped on a bandwagon of satanic uh, influences. It was made 
not to get a reaction, but when they got the reaction, they thought, let's just run with it because it's it's great publicity. But, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think in today's day and age, if that was released, um, I think the way the, the, the world is, I don't think people would get it. No, no, not at all. I, I was thinking that almost if you don't have this album, like you don't have the darkness. I, I'd agree. You know, I, and I, I know you could argue that, oh, but you, you still had like the Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and stuff like that. But this is just that. I think without this album, I don't think Megadeth mm. sell as many records as they do. I don't. Yeah. Well, Metallica's site, Power um, Slave, is one of their main influences. And that is a very different yeah. animal to this. It's conceptually yes, yeah, different. Definitely. So, would, right, do we feel this is Maiden's best work? It's definitely, it always goes down as like the classic Iron Maiden album. But do we feel it's like their it, best album? I, I know you said Killers is your favorite. Killers is their most rounded but, album, in my opinion. Purely right. for the reason that there is a range of music on there that works as a whole. There's not one bad song. Mm-hmm. There's not one outstanding song on the album. On this, there's bad and good. So in my opinion, it's not their best album. I think this album is a sign of, like we said about Hello Be Thy Name, Like this is a sign of what they want to achieve. It's almost like the embryonic state, mm. if you like. So, um, and Hallowed Be Thy Name yeah. is like the standard, but obviously the whole, I don't think the whole album is at that standard. I think it's kind of a work in progress. I don't think they actually, I think you don't get to Seventh Son of a Seventh Son without this. And I think Seventh Son of a Seventh Son mm. is their best album. I would, I tend to agree with I that. Think, yeah. Um, uh, there's been highlights throughout their 80s career and there's there's been highlights Mm-hmm. throughout um their notice career as well and oh if we're we so i i suppose we we agree that it's not probably not their best mm-hmm. work but it's probably their most accessible because it's got those single worthy songs on it it's got the anthemic hooks on like number of the beast run to the hills the prisoner mm-hmm. i think you can give like you gave me it as the first I made an album to listen to for a reason. Yeah. yeah. You must have thought if this will get, this will get you hooked. You must, you, that, there must've been, I know it. we're going mm. back nearly 30 years now. There must've been some reasoning for you saying have number of the beasts for the first, first one to listen to. I think you're right. And without sort of realizing it, that, that is spot on. It is the most, because if I jumped, uh, dumped you straight in on power slave. Yeah. It's quite hard going record. Isn't you know, it? 13 minute end song. Fucking hell, there's yeah. a lot in that, and it's going to be something that you think, oh, dear me, it would be too heavy. Um, uh, I think Seven Sun has got a certain degree of accessibility to it, purely yeah. because they've got some short bangers like Moonchild, um, Evil That Men Do, um, uh, Canopy of Madness, but they've also got the long sort of epics that made them famous for. Um, yeah, was it The Prophecy, isn't it? That's quite a long yeah. one. Is it The Prophecy? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it is, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yes, you're absolutely right. Totally accessible, shorter songs, blistering pace, great vocals. Um. Would Iron Maiden be the Iron Maiden we know now if they hadn't changed the singer? Quah! Like, do you, would they have gone on to produce 16 studio albums in 
played to 300,000 people in Rio and everything that we know they've done with Bruce Dickinson, would they have done that, do you think? Would they be? Or is it just alchemy of, like, that one decision is, like, propelled them? I would have loved to have heard Maiden, uh, or rather, I would have loved to have heard Paul Diano in more Maiden stuff. Paul at the time was quoted as saying that he left Maiden because he wanted to do something more radio friendly. Um, and you know that's bollocks because literally a few albums down the line of utter dross, yeah, he went back up and started doing metal again. Yeah, and 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 the band you've just left have got a number one album. Exactly, yeah. On the first the first album without you is number one. Exactly. And I think there's gonna be a total degree of bitterness there. He wished he I think he probably looked back and thinks, uh I was bloody stupid there, young, stupid, naive, and didn't really know what I had until I'd lost it. I would have loved, I, th- I think Killers showed his versatility vocally, and I would have loved to have heard more of that. But if he had stayed, they would have wound up getting a different vocalist anyway, I think. And it may right. not have been Bruce Dickinson. No, but... But I think... I think Bruce Dickinson's um, vocal range and talents obviously influenced the direction they then took. Yeah. I think there was a, a planetary alignment. Yeah, alchemy, like we said. Yeah, and they had to do it at that point. So, um, yes, uh, I don't think they would have had the career they had if they'd stuck with Paul Diano. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for joining me on our first Classic Albums episode. Pleasure, mate. That was... You were the on Bateman. That was the number of the beast. And I want to leave you with this. We want information. 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 Who are you? The new number two. Who is number one? You are number six. I am not a number. I, I am, am a free, free man. man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, hey. Thank you very much. Oh, that's a classic. Again.